Hey, today we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. And so if you have your Bible, go ahead and start finding it. It's in the New Testament. After the, you get to the Gospels, you've got Acts, Romans, and then all the Eans, right? Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2 is where we're going to go. And uh, before we even begin, let's just have another word of prayer. <clears throat> Father in heaven, I thank you so much that you are faithful and that you are good. And uh, Lord, as we come to scripture, we recognize that there's nothing in us that can comprehend these things. I mean, we can, we can treat it like an intellectual exercise and we can think about the ideas that are here, but for it to have more than just informative impact, but transformative impact, that's only by your Holy Spirit. And so we're asking for a measure of your Holy Spirit today, the blessing of the Spirit of truth that leads us into truth. We're asking that as we read these words, we would see more than just nice thoughts, but that we would hear from God. Just like it was said earlier, you know, those three, let there be light. Lord, we want to hear the creative word of God speaking to our hearts and minds today. We ask for uh, the capacity to be still and know that you are God. We ask for the capacity to, to lay burdens aside and just fix our eyes on Jesus. And I know that there are burdens here today that we want to just lay before you. And so would you please fulfill the promise of Isaiah 26 that you will keep in perfect peace he whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Lead us to that, God. As we get into scripture, Lord, lead us to a deeper trust in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Let the family say, amen. Amen. All right, Ephesians chapter 2. If you're there, say, I'm there. All right, if you're still getting there, go ahead and help a neighbor or ask somebody next to you where to find it. Ephesians chapter 2. Last week, we... Um, we started with Ephesians chapter 1. We looked at a lot of different things there. Actually, the, the entire chapter is full, chock full of deep theological, high, lofty realities. And uh, Ephesians chapter 1, we discovered the spiritual blessings that are already ours in Christ. There are things, there are binfuls of blessings, like we talked about last week, that are already ours. And sometimes we just don't have eyes to see them. So in chapter 2, what we're going to discover is that Paul is, is basically, um, he's answering the prayer that he prayed in chapter 1. Remember in, in chapter 1, he said, I pray that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to understand what is the hope of your calling and all of these things. And now the rest of the letter is Paul's attempt to be an answer to that prayer. Let me help your eyes be enlightened to what God has already given you. And so we're going to see the glories of God's grace and the glories of God's peace. But in order to see the glories of God's salvation, we're going to kind of, we're going to divide this up into chapters or plot lines, if you will. Three stories of the story of grace. All right. Three stories of the story of grace. And before Paul gets to the really good stuff, he actually has to describe some of the bad stuff. All right, so here we are, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm using the New King James Version today. It says this, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, 
once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. I'm going to stop right here. You can kind of pick up where, uh, just if you were to kind of get a pulse or even look at Paul's body language as he's writing this stuff, he's probably pretty somber. You know, this is a sobering self-portrait, if you will. I mean, I like how the New King James Version kind of adds the note of hope right in the, in the beginning of verse 1, and you he made alive. But if you notice, in my Bible at least, he made alive, that's in italics, meaning that was supplied to kind of give uh, just a, a rendering of the true trajectory of the thought. But Paul is basically starting off with some of the bad news of the gospel. You were dead in trespasses and sins. And so if, if we're kind of dividing up the story of grace into three separate stories, story number one is simply this. We were dead. We were dead. And let's be honest, death is not something we take lightly or even like to think about. Especially um, in light of recent events, as was mentioned earlier. Uh, not just here in Douglas County, but... Um, but even in our own family circles, recently, this is fresh. When we, when we experience death and when we uh, talk about death, it's something that we would rather not talk about. And for whatever reason, whatever the circumstances that surround those, those events and those tragedies, we look at death as something to grieve, right? We look at, something, at death as something that we have little power over. It renders us helpless. It reminds us of our uh, of our mortality and fatality. And while death may be what defines this present life, it will never be something we just consider routine. Right? I mean, even though we know that death marks this life, it's never going to be something we get used to. Why? Because God has put eternity in our hearts. Right? Because God has put eternity in hearts. Death is serious. Death is sobering and something we're powerless to overcome. And I think that's why Paul uses such stark language to describe our condition of being in trespasses and sins. He's saying you're not just stuck in trespasses and sins. He's saying you're dead in that. To feel stuck in that means like, oh, I can just, uh, I can just step out and get unstuck. No. <laughs> to be dead in it means that there's nothing I can do to come out of that. That's why Paul is talking about sins and trespasses. We were dead. Sin in chapter 1, you know, we were talking about in chapter 1 last week that we are enslaved in sin and we need to be redeemed from it. But here in chapter 2, Paul heightened, he ups the ante, so to speak, and says, no, sin is not just something that we are trapped in and enslaved in to be released from. Sin is something that we are dead in and we need to be resurrected from. There's a triple threat that Paul gets to regarding sin's death grip. Three, if you kind of carrying on the story uh, motif here, three villains in this story. And uh, you read about it here, starting in verse two, it says, in which you once walked according to the what? What does your Bible say? A course of this world is what mine says too. Yeah, the course of this world. In other words, this world, its values, its culture, its patterns, its impulses, it has trenched a groove that we have just kind of naturally aligned with. There's a constant pull 
there's a constant pull to conform with the patterns and values of our surrounding culture. I mean, with, with all the digital media, with all the messages that kind of enter our senses from every which direction, there's constant pressure to line up with the give me, let me be first, survival of the fittest values of this world. <clears throat> it's what we tend to walk in, according to verse 2, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. When, when the Bible uses that, uh, that idea of walk, it's not just saying that, that the course of this world is a path that we take, it's a road that we take. No, when it's talking about walk, it's, it's kind of our natural routine. It's our habitual round of life. And Paul is saying, hey, environmentally, we have kind of gotten in a routine rut of walking the way of this world. But it's not just the environmental influences. There's more in verse 2. It says, in which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's, that's a villain number one, so to speak. According to the prince of the power of the air. And here, it's not just environmental influences, but a very real spiritual influence. Yeah, this is code word for Satan. This is code word for the enemy. Paul is actually being very specific. There is a personality behind the evil that we see in this world. Of all the New Testament um, writings, Ephesians is probably the most vocal about the personality behind evil. I mean, we get to chapter 6 and it's, um, you know, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. It talks about the spiritual armor of God and things like that. But here what Paul is saying is, hey, we know that things are bad, but it's not bad by accident. There is a real being who is really intent on stealing, killing, and destroying, right? Jesus said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they might have life, praise the Lord, and life more abundantly. So there's an environmental influence that's kind of uh, keeping us in sin's death grip. There's a spiritual influence, but there's more. There's a biological influence. It keeps going in verse 3, among whom also, I'm sorry, uh, according to the, this is back in verse 2, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Ugh. So on top of the environmental influence of culture and the values of this world, on top of the spiritual attacks of the enemy, there's also the inherent influence of our own, our own twistedness. There's the, uh, there's the inherent influence that contributes to our spiritual death and lostness. And I think this is why Paul uses some of the language that he uses. He, he says we're sons of disobedience, as if that's our ancestry right? Disobedience. Uh, it, it's a word for willful unbelief, obstinate opposition to God's divine will. That's part of our heritage. That's just our spiritual DNA. And so we've got these things that are really contributing to this sad story. We were dead. It's our underlying constitution and inherent makeup. Man, do we realize that sin is not just something to get rid of, but sin is something to be resurrected from? You know, I think uh, this is an important thing to realize before we kind of move on here, because as long as we minimize sin as something to do or not do, to put on or put off, then salvation will only be asking God to help us do or not do. 
then salvation will be only asking God to help us put on or put off. When really what we need to ask God for is to be born again, is to be resurrected. As long as we minimize sin to quantitative dynamics, we will never realize salvation on the qualitative level. And so this is, this is real. We were dead. But two other things about this story. Uh, first of all, the pronoun that Paul uses in this language, we. He doesn't just say you were dead. I mean, he starts off that way, you know, and maybe that's uh, uh, some commentators have recognized that maybe that's Paul's way of easing into this topic. Like if there are Jewish, if there's a Jewish audience, they would naturally say, oh yeah, you, yeah, you Gentiles were dead in trespasses and sins. But then he turns the corner and says, we all were that, right? In verse three, he switches from a you to a we, among whom also we all. Paul includes himself in this deadness. Now, if I remember right, Paul in the letter to the Philippians, he said that by the letter of the law, he was blameless, right? And yet he is considering himself dead in trespasses and sins. Reminds me of Daniel. You remember Daniel, the prophet Daniel, right? And in Daniel chapter six, there were princes and governors of the, of the Persian uh, empire that were trying to find fault against Daniel. They couldn't find nothing. Right? No mud to fling at him. There was just, this guy was upright, upstanding. They couldn't find anything wrong with him. And yet when Daniel is caught praying, obviously in chapter 6, but later on in chapter 9, when Daniel is praying and that prayer is recorded, it's a prayer of confession. It's a prayer of confessing sin. It's a prayer of confessing, recognizing that not just the people out there, but he himself has been responsible for the captivity they are experiencing. Daniel, the guy that was upstanding and perfect, he says, Lord, forgive us our sins. Just like Paul is saying, man, this is us. This is not just you. This is us. No matter how good or not so bad you may feel, we are all, by nature, children of wrath. Sons and daughters of disobedience. We were dead. That is who we all are, or rather, to use Paul's specific language, that is who we all were. Right? <laughs> we were. Right? We were dead. That, that's Paul's very uh, intentional use of the past tense here. This dead life is something that once defined our lives. Right? In verse 2, it's, you once walked according to the course of this world. In verse 3, it's, we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh. In other words, this is the note of hope that encourages us to keep reading. <laughs> this is the note of hope that says, you know what? This may be who we were formerly, but it doesn't have to be the defining picture of who we are presently. The story of who we were is interrupted now by another story. It's overtaken now by story number two. And that story is a story of who God is and what he does. Story number two, but God made us alive. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's keep reading, right? But God made us alive. How did he do this? How did he do this? In verse four, it says, but God. And I, I just like that it just really stands out here with the comma right there. And, you know, commentators actually tell us, George Knight says, um, but God, these are the two most important words in our lives. <laughs> the deadness of our past can only be countered by who he is and what he does. 
What God has done, he's made us alive, but that's going to come later on in verse 5. What God has done is actually prefaced by three qualities of who God is. All right, let's read it. In verse 4, but God, who is, number one, rich in mercy. Number two, because of his great love with which he loved us. And then number three, the extremity of this love. Even when we were dead in trespasses, but God made us alive. Hmm. He's rich in mercy, mercy. Mercy is a word that's pulling from an Old Testament idea of uh, chesed is the Hebrew word. It means covenant loyalty. It's the quality of being faithful to your vows, right? And God is not just, okay, I'll keep my promises. He is rich in mercy. He is rich in that covenant faithfulness. It abounds in him. I want to stay true to my promises, no matter how far gone you are, no matter how untrue you are to your promises. He is rich in mercy, and then he's moved and motivated by his great love, agape, mega agape, great love with which he loved us. And then the extremity, like we said, even when we were dead, even when we were undeserving, and unable to do anything for ourselves. What did God do? He made us alive. What did God do? He met our need. It wasn't just that we were bad people that he made good. We were dead people that he made alive. And when did he do this? Again, this is past tense here. (laughs) He's already done it. He's already done it. Again, it's a a past tense word. It's completed sense to all of this. In other words, there's a now reality to our aliveness. We don't just have an aliveness to hope for. It's an aliveness that is now. In fact, I I put this on the screen, I think. Yeah, this is uh, from uh, George Knight's commentary on Ephesians. Salvation, according to Ephesians, is not something that people hope for. Well, maybe one day he'll make me alive. No, it is an accomplished fact in the life of a Christian. You believe that today? Man, this is what Paul is trying to communicate. He's trying to answer that prayer. Lord, I pray that the eyes of their heart would be open. He wants us to be open to the fact that God has made us alive. And then how how did he do this? He made us alive according to verse 5. He made us alive, notice the next three words, together with who? Together with Christ. I'm going to ask you a question. I don't, I don't know if this really makes sense to me just yet, and I, I'm not quite sure if it's going to make sense to you, but I'm, I'm going to try to get us to be thinking in the way that Paul is thinking here. How much do you identify your life with Christ's life? Think about that. Just, how much do you identify your life with Christ's life? There was a verse I was reading with my kids the, uh, just the, the other day this week. Um, in Romans chapter 6, verse 4, he says, Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we also might walk in newness of life. Do you get the concept that Paul is talking about there? That just as Christ died, our old self can also die. Just as Christ was buried in the grave, our sinful past can be buried in the grave, right? And just as Christ was raised from the grave, 
we can be raised in newness of life. There's an identification with the life of Christ. Do you follow that train of thought? Yeah, this is something that's uniquely Paul, by the way. Uniquely his way of just expressing the the glories of grace and salvation. But I want us to to look at here in Ephesians, because we, we get that, yeah. Okay, Christ died, he was buried, he resurrected. That means I can die, I can be buried metaphorically and be resurrected very, in a very real spiritual sense. But then, um, if you just look again at Ephesians, Paul's going like, to intensify this just a little bit more. So just, just watch this. Verse, verse 5, Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up together. There it is. And then he's going to continue it. And made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you get that? Okay, I can identify with the death of Christ. Yes, the old self is put to death. I can identify with the the resurrection of Christ. I've been raised to newness of life. But now there's something about the ascension of Christ and then the seating at the right hand of God, the coronation of Christ. And Paul is saying you and I can identify with that too. What? (laughs) Again, the question, how much do you identify your life with the life of Christ? I believe that Paul is telling us that God's rich mercy and great love has made it possible for our story to not end with deadness and hopelessness, but that our story can be rewritten, that our very lives can be identified with the life of Christ. And that we, even now, I mean, yeah, you're you're sitting here in Castle Rock, Colorado, but really you are seating in heavenly places with Jesus. That means that this life isn't the reality. This life doesn't have to define who you are and how you express who you are. It's that life that ultimately matters. Um, At home, I have this Bible. It was given to me when I was at seminary at Andrews University. It's the Andrews Study Bible. I don't know how many of you have a copy of that. But in the notes on Ephesians 2, 4 through 10, it's kind of doing this this very same thing, kind of outlining, wait, there's the death of Jesus, there's the resurrection of Jesus, there's a ascension of Jesus and a coronation of Jesus. And Paul is saying, hey, this is us. This is our reality. This is our identity. And then notice the next part of the, the study notes. It says, the great challenge and privilege of the Christian life is to lay claim to this alternate identity graciously offered to us through Christ. How are you doing with that challenge today? Have you laid claim to the alternate identity that is made available to us in Jesus? Again, mind blown. I I don't know. This is still something that I'm personally trying to understand. But later on in the letter, he's basically going to outline to us how this shows up in our everyday life. In other words, if we find ourselves in destructive or dysfunctional behaviors and patterns, what we're doing is we're living according to an identity that doesn't exist anymore. And so later on in chapter 4, he's going to say, walk worthy. There's that idea of walk. Walk worthy of the calling with which you have been called. It's a heavenly calling. Your permanent residence is not here. Your permanent identity is somewhere else in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. 
<laughs> he made us alive together with Christ. Again, it, this, is, this is awesome. And for what purpose? What purpose? In verse 7, he identifies the purpose of this. That or so that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, what, what purpose? What, what is he wanting to do as a result of this? That in the ages to come, so at some future time, he might do what? He might show. Did you catch that? He might show. Or in other words, put something on display. The word for show here is not just to like, um, you know, show and tell. It's, it's actually to prove. It's kind of an intensified version of the word show. It's something to make fully evident, to show conspicuous proof of to an undeniable extent. And he's going to show something. Show what exactly? According to verse 7, that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. The surpassing riches of his grace in ages to come. Who's going to be looking at this show? Who's going to be watching for this display of God's character? Angelic hosts, unfallen worlds, the entire cosmos. Wait, 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 wait. You mean... That God's grace is not just a gift for me. It's a gift for the entire cosmos. Do you catch that? That means that when I say yes to the grace of God, I'm not just saying yes for my benefit. I'm saying yes so that the unfallen worlds and the angelic hosts at some point can look and say, wow, that's who God is. And this is something that, again, a grand cosmic perspective that's going to come up later in the letter to the Ephesians. But for now, just, just recognize that, this, that God's saving grace for you and me is ultimately saving grace for the rest of the universe. That's heavy. How could we say no to that? Right? How could we say no to that? All right. So story number one, we were dead. We all, past tense, were dead and in need of resurrection. Story number two, God made us alive. He met our need. Didn't just make bad people good. He made dead people alive. Story number three, what's the result of that? Story number three is simply this. It changes who we are, right? We are, not we were, but we are his workmanship. Let's keep going. Verse eight now, Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast, for we are his workmanship. Does anybody else have a different version that has a different word besides workmanship? Yeah? That's a good word. That's that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, some versions say handiwork. Uh, the Greek word is poema. It's a work of art, right? We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should, here's that idea of walking, that we should walk in them. Man, what does this say about God's salvation? One, salvation is God's work and not ours. Yeah. Salvation is, is contingent upon God's capacity, not my inability. We are saved Excuse me, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Again, charis is the Greek word that refers to God's favor, that inclination to extend oneself. And that's God's disposition to save. Yes, grace saves. 
But I love how it's phrased. Again, just notice the, the verb tense. For by grace you have been saved. There's a completed reality there. Yes, salvation is something we are experiencing daily and will ultimately see the, the full materialization of. But that salvation has already been completed in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. The inclination of God to extend himself toward us, to favor us with his great love. It's something that saves us, not just in the, the rescuing, let me get you out of that sense, but it saves us in the complete restorative sense. That's why I love Hebrews 7 verse 25. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Hmm. God's grace, God's salvation is something that is complete. It's something that's for us. And how do we then ex- access this? If, 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 God, if salvation is all God's work, if it's all his grace, then how do we obtain this? According to the rest of verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through, what's the next word in your Bible? Faith. Through faith. Through faith. In other words, faith, a trust. Trust is what accesses this saving grace. But did you notice the rest of the verse? That even this... It's not of ourselves. Even faith, the capacity to trust God, that's not something that you and I drum up. It's a gift. Romans chapter 12, to each man, God has given a measure of faith. Given. Faith is given to us. Even the capacity to trust God. Why? Because in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, we're told that we cannot even submit ourselves to God. It's just not in our wheelhouse. We have no capacity for that. So where does faith come from? comes from him the salvation comes from him the capacity to receive that salvation comes from him salvation is god's work works don't save at least ours don't (laughs) if there's anyone's work that has value in salvation it's god's work we are that work we are his workmanship and and that's what i love about this salvation is is cast in creative language did you notice that in verse 10 for we are his, his workmanship. He's worked us over. He's like a, like a poem that someone has slaved over and just poured into it intense thought and emotion. Like a, like a piece of clay that, that a potter has, has formed and reformed and just put in effort. We are that handiwork, that masterpiece. Salvation is God's creative work. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Do you know that you are God's work of art? Not you will be, but you are. We are. We are his workmanship. And this creative work of God has not just created something of us, but it's also created something for us. Created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand, intentionally, deliberately designed for us to walk in as a routine way, and not just something that we occasionally do good works, but this is our way of life, right? God's creative work actually prepares good works for us to walk in, which is actually the polar opposite of walking in the course of this world, right? That we looked at in verse two, right? In which you once walked according to the course of this world. There's a, there's a, a groove, a, a trench, a, a pattern that this world has kind of marked out. And it's so easy for us to walk in that, but God has recreated us. No, no, no. We are his work. That's something that used to define us. This is who we are now. 
Though walking in sin's deadness may seem natural and even inherent, we were created for something completely different. Good works. Simply put, good works. A life that reveals God's goodness and God's glory. You and I were made to live like God's masterpiece, to be hung up on the wall for all the cosmos to see. That's who God is. Wow. That's our story. And I'm sticking to it. (laughs) Man, will you receive God's saving grace today? Why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we? Today, we're just going to close with a simple song. um, Grace, grace, God's grace. And I want to appeal to you today. If if there's a way that, that God is inviting you to respond to that grace, talk to him about it. Talk to him. Let him know, man. If, if this is the life that is no longer defining me, then cause me to live the life that you have defined for me, that I would be his workmanship. Let's, let's sing that together now. Um, marvelous grace. If that's your desire to receive this grace, would you please stand with us as we sing? <laughs>